0: The thing I'm interested in is helping individuals be everything they can be. And the problem we've got now is we've got a label that applies to a spectrum that's so broad that goes from Silicon Valley computer programmer, an artist, you know, a college professor, to somebody who cannot dress themselves. And they all have the same name.
1: Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I can't think of anyone who exemplifies the mission of The Daily Helping more than this week's guest, Temple Grandin. Dr. Granton obtained her BA at Franklin Pierce College and her MS in Animal Science at Arizona State University. She received her PhD in Animal Science from the University of Illinois in 1989. Today, she teaches courses on livestock behavior and facility design at Colorado State University and consults with the livestock industry on facility design, livestock handling, and animal welfare. She has appeared on television shows such as 2020, 48 Hours, CNN Larry King Live, Primetime Live, 60 Minutes, the Today Show, and many shows in other countries. She has been featured in People Magazine, The New York Times, Forbes, U.S. News and World Report, Time Magazine, The New York Times Book Review, and Discover Magazine. In 2010, Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people. Interviews with Dr. Grandin have been broadcast on National Public Radio, and she has a 2010 TED Lecture titled, The World Needs All Kinds of Minds. She has also authored over 400 articles in both scientific journals and livestock periodicals on animal handling, welfare, and facility design. She is the author of Thinking in Pictures, Livestock Handling and Transport, Genetics, and the Behavior of Domestic Animals. Her books, Animals in Translation and Animals Make Us Human, were both on the New York Times bestseller list. Animals Make Us Human was also on the Canadian bestseller list. Her life story has been made into an Emmy Award-winning movie produced by HBO titled Temple Grandin, starring Claire Danes, and it, as stated, won seven Emmy Awards and a Golden Globe. The movie shows her life as a teenager and how she started her career. In 2016, she received the Meritorious Award from the OIE World Organization for Animal Health in Paris, France, for her work on developing animal welfare guidelines. The same year, she was also inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Temple, welcome to the show.
0: It's really wonderful to be here.
1: It is a tremendous honor to have you and there's so many different areas that we could talk about but as we chatted a little bit before we started recording you and I are both very passionate about autism activism and I wanted to kind of jump back to the beginning of your life because you grew up in a time when autism wasn't nearly as well known as it is today and was treated very differently from the scientific and the, the medical community than today. So talk to us a bit about your childhood when you were young and your diagnoses and what transpired in your youth.
0: Well, I was uh, nonverbal until age four, and I had all these symptoms of autism. I was back in 1949 when I was taken to a neurologist, and the neurologist referred my mother to a speech therapist who worked out of her home. And uh speech therapist uh, did a lot of one-on-one uh, teaching. She'd talk really slowly to me, get me to repeat my words. And then there was also a lot of emphasis on turn-taking games. And it's really important. These kids have got to learn how to wait and take turns. And since I was a child of the 50s, social rules were taught in a much more structured way. And that was very, very helpful uh, to me. I can't emphasize enough uh, the importance of just teaching things like uh please and thank you manners. The other thing that was done with me when I was in elementary school is my ability in art was always encouraged. Take the thing the kids good at and build on it. It could be mathematics. It could be art. Maybe it's writing because these are things that can later on be developed into careers.
1: That's interesting. So right away, they were building upon your strengths, which is terrific.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, My ability to draw really started to show up in third grade. And I was encouraged to do all kinds of um, art. You know, autistic kids like to do the same stuff over and over again. It would have been the same horse head over and over again. But Mother uh, said, do it stable. Then let's do a watercolor of a beach, something just totally different. And she liked that picture, and she put it in a professional frame with glass. Take the thing the kid's good at, broaden it, stretch it out. Because when you grow up, to use your art skill, you have to do assignments for other people. And that art skill became the basis of uh, basically designing livestock facilities, which is the industrial design side of doing um, engineering work. But there's a lot of kids that are smart in math in elementary school. Well, give them a high school math book you can do it. Introduce computer programming.
1: Again, you know the, the emphasis on strengths is something I think that is so lacking in our society. And it sounds like, from what I understand, your mother was extraordinarily dedicated to your development because you grew up in an era where autism, children with autism were often put into essentially psychiatric institutions back then. Well,
0: basically, I, I was a kind of kid that was nonverbal. I was the kind of kid that kind of just threw away in my generation. And fortunately, mother didn't go to psychiatrists. She went to a neurologist who had a little different view on things and tested me for epilepsy and deafness referred me to the speech therapy school. Now, you take the kids that used to be diagnosed Asperger's. These are the kids with no speech delay. A lot of those kids' um, social rules were taught in a rigid way, and and I've worked with a lot of people in skilled trades uh, when I was out in the meat plants uh, supervising construction projects and things I designed that I know are on the autism spectrum. I've been out to Silicon Valley. There's programmers out there that I know are on the spectrum. So in my generation, the kids with severe speech delay, like me, they used to just kind of throw away – but the more Asperger kid, the socially awkward kid, they'd pound in the social rules and they would go out and get employed because I'm seeing a number of grandmothers and granddads, you know, people my age, maybe 10 years younger, coming up to me and saying, oh, my niece or nephew just got diagnosed with autism. And I just found out I'm on a spectrum, too. And I was an accountant all my life or I worked in uh, computers all my life. And now I figured out why I had social problems.
1: So talk to us a little bit about what it was like for you as you went through grade school, from grade school then on to middle school and high school.
0: Well, grade school actually went really quite well. It was a small, regular school. It was a private school, but real small classes, 13 kids in a class. And one of the things my teacher did is she explained to the other children that I had a handicap, but it was not visible like a wheelchair, and they should not be torturing me. High school was awful. Regular, big high school did not work. I was bullied and teased. I got kicked out of ninth grade for throwing a book at a girl who bullied and teased me. And I got sent, my mother found a boarding school for me to go to that was on a farm. And uh, for the first three years I was there, I ran the horse barn and I cleaned horse stalls. And my mother goes, wasn't too happy about that. And Mr. Patey, the headmaster, said, let her her get through her adolescence. But now I look back on it and I'm going, the most important thing I learned from cleaning those nine horse stalls every day, feeding the horses and putting them in and out, I was learning how to work. And I'm seeing a big problem today with kids not learning how to work. And then the last year that I was at the school, Mr. Carlock, my science teacher, came on the scene and started getting me interested in studying. He was very, very crucial in in my development. But I think that these kids, you know, fully. let's say you take a fully verbal kid. I don't care what his label is. He's got some learning problem. Maybe he's got some autism. Maybe he's got some ADHD. And there's a lot of crossover. Uh, And we talk about transition from high school to adulthood. I'd like to see that transition done before they graduate from high school. In other words, two jobs, real jobs out in the economy before they graduate. When I was 13, mother got me a sewing job that she just um, figured out in the neighborhood. And then when I was 15, I went to my aunt's ranch. And there was work involved in that. She had guests and I had to wait on tables. Then when I was in college, I did an internship at a research lab. And then I did another internship uh, as an aide for a severely autistic uh, little girl. Uh, so by the time I got out of college, I had learned my working skills.
1: And not only had you learned your working skills, but you mentioned something that I think is so important for kids today, is that you were very fortunate enough to have Mr. Carlock, your science teacher, who was a mentor for you and really helped you push you on your way.
0: Absolutely, it did. Absolutely, absolutely. Good teachers can make such a difference. Uh, there was Mrs. Deach my fabulous third-grade teacher, And uh, then, you know, uh, Mr. Carlock, my science teacher, and at the ranch was another important mentor. You know, this is where the right teachers can really help a a kid get turned around. And I think one of the worst things the schools have done today is taking out all the hands-on classes.
1: It's true. I, I think that you're right that there has been a shift away from practical application. When I was in school, we had shop class. I don't think they have shop class anymore. It's been replaced with computer labs and such but uh you're you're right on there and i love kind of what we're doing we're kind of weaving you know your past and then you're bringing it back to the future where where it is today and and how kids are today um i want to keep going because your story is so interesting so you went off to college when did you know that the livestock work was going to be such a major passion for you
0: well, I actually originally uh, majored in psychology, and I actually did one year in the master's toward psychology, but I was right there in Arizona in the middle of cattle country, and I started going out to the feed yards, and I switched majors. Uh, you know, sometimes things just, you know, happen, and the thing I was especially interested in psychology was visual illusions, and the movie did a very nice job of showing the optical illusion room. So on my very first work with cattle, I looked at what are they looking at? And I noticed that cattle wouldn't walk over a shadow or they'd be a rope hanging down and they'd stop at it. And other people just weren't seeing these little distractions. Uh, you sometimes, um, you just don't know how, where careers are going, are going to go. And the way I got the connection to the cattle industry was my mother got remarried when I was 14 and Anne was my stepfather's sister. You know, sometimes something happens to just luck. <laughs> to get you in, into something good. And you sometimes don't know where you're gonna go.
1: That's absolutely right. And and so then you you finished your school, you, you did complete your doctorate at the University of Illinois in yes. animal science, and you've spent your career in in the cattle industry and, and Well making-
0: and I was during when I was working on my what at the University of Illinois, I was also working on a lot of equipment design stuff and out in appliance. know, lots of hands-on stuff. Another thing I want to talk about is the different kinds of minds. I'm a visual thinker who thinks in photorealistic pictures, and the movie showed that really accurately. And the work that I've done on design is uh, a field called industrial design. That's sort of the visual side of engineering. And then you have another kind of mind in autism. It's a mathematical mind who thinks in patterns. I think in pictures, the mathematical mind thinks in patterns, and then the third type is the word thinker, who thinks in words. And uh, in my book, The the Autistic Brain, I actually present uh, scientific studies that show that there are different kinds of ways people think. And, you know, there's the art mind or picture mind like me, then there's more of a mathematical pattern mind. And then some people are really, really good with words. And they think in words.
1: You're certainly one of the the most well-known experts on autism and autism activism in the world, and there are a lot of different theories as to what may cause autism. Uh, based on what you've seen, what is the latest research indicating in terms of that?
0: Well, it has a big genetic component. There's no question about that. Uh, because if you look at uh, like the old twin studies, if you have identical twins, there's a very, very high, what they call concordance trait, And don't hold me to the exact figure, but it's like if one twin's autistic, is, but the other one's about 60% of the time is autistic, and don't hold me to that figure, uh, but it's high. And then you have families where you have one autistic kid, then you're more likely to have another one on strong genetic uh, basis. And on the social side, I think a brain can be more thinking or a brain can be more social-emotional. There's been interesting research in dogs that shows that this is kind of a difference between a wolf and a dog. The wolf is more cognitive, and when we've bred dogs to be real, real social emotional, and at what point is being kind of geeky an abnormality? I think on the social emotional side of things it is a true continuum. And the thing I'm interested in is helping individuals be everything they can be. And the problem we've got now is we've got a label. That applies to a spectrum that's so broad that goes from a Silicon Valley computer programmer, an artist, you know, a college professor, to somebody who cannot dress themselves. And they all have the same name. That's right. And that's a real problem.
1: Hey, guys, Dr. Richard here. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. It is a problem, and it has become controversial. In It was a number of years ago when the DSM was transitioning from the 4 to the 5, and the DSM is essentially the... Manual, if you will, that yes. psychology uses to provide psychological diagnoses and they
0: and also to provide insurance payments yeah, but
1: well, that 's for sure, but one of the things they did was they took away the diagnosis of asperger 's, and those are the children who have some autism like symptoms yet they have intact verbal skills
0: basically. Uh, looking at the uh, DSM-4, Aspergers had no obvious speech delay. Correct. So these are the kids that were socially awkward. Were to be autistic, you had to have onset by 36 months and have speech delay. You see, and they removed the speech delay stuff. And I think from the standpoint of educators and service providers, I think it's an absolute disaster because since the DSM-5 came out in 2013, I'm seeing more situations where you've got a teenager. Fully verbal teenager, who's getting kind of uh, babied and overprotected, and not learning something as simple as going into a store and buying something.
1: That's right. It's the the lack of ability to complete these practical skills is, I think, what you're speaking of.
0: Well, you see, people are getting totally hung up on the on the on the words. I look at the kid and I go, he looks like Silicon Valley Junior. Uh, This happened to be the airport. Let's take them over to the airport newsstand and have them buy something right now.
1: No, I I get what you're saying. We're talking about teaching these kids the real-life skills. I want to jump back because certainly, yes, we we do believe that there is a genetic component, and and that's been demonstrated consistently. But it does seem that the numbers, the, the prevalence rate of autism is skyrocketing. Do you think that it's the fact that we just know more as a scientific community and are better able to identify it, whereas these kids have been there all along but hadn't been identified, or there actually are now much greater numbers of autism than ever before?
0: Well, I think there's a portion of it that's increased detection, because I've worked in a technical field, and I've worked with so many people, that, uh, you know, it, artists, um, you know, technical people, skilled tradespeople that I know are on the spectrum. i worked with them on jobs. I remember a guy in the 70s. His name was Tom. I used to go over to his office just to talk to him. And someone said, "Oh, well, Tom, you ask him what time it is, he'll tell you how to build a watch. And, uh, yeah, I, was, I liked him because he, he probably was on the spectrum. And he was a technical person at a, at a meat company.
1: It sounds like, then, you're, from your perspective, there have these individuals have been out there. We just weren't identifying them to the degree we are now.
0: I think the other thing that's a problem that's hurting things is social skills are not taught in the same structured way that they were taught in the 50s. Sit down meals. You know, and if I stuck my finger in my mashed potatoes, mother would say, use the fork. She'd give the instruction. You were taught to say, please and thank you. Kids were taught money. When I was seven years old, I got 50 cents a week for allowance. And I knew exactly what I could buy. I could buy five comics with that. I could buy 10 popsicles. But if I wanted that 69 cent toy airplane, I had to save for two weeks. And that taught some very, very basic skills about, about money. And mother never bought those little trinkets like that. Those things came out of, out of my allowance. She never bought comic books. That was something that I bought with my allowance. And the other thing is I'm seeing a lot of kids getting addicted to video games. Mother restricted television to one hour a day. But I'm seeing kids uh, totally addicted to video games. And what I'm seeing with the fully verbal kids with the late teens and early 20s, fully verbal, reads and writes at an adult level. One kind of kid, you know, he's, learned, he's got jobs. Like one person on, had summer jobs at Dairy Queen, discovered nursing. She's doing nursing now. Another boy discovered something else and had held the jobs. And then the other tr- uh, track I see them go is he's 21. He's in the basement playing video games all day. And I'm kind of, it's almost uh, – I'm seeing like two different tracks that tend to be going down. And these are the fully verbal that read and write at an adult level. I won't put any more specificity on it other than that.
1: The video game seems to be – an issue in a lot of areas and and like anything else there's good and bad but if you have well and a, i
0: would recommend i don't rec- i do not recommend banning them but i recommend restricting it to an right. hour a day
1: that's right and, and they say that about screens as well that there should be restrictions that's and, and right i, I think that one of the problems is that the children on the autism spectrum Oftentimes, because of that cognitive rigidity, they lock on to something. So it's hard to get them to stop playing something like a video game that's so stimulating to them at times.
0: Oh, it's like a drug. I mean, well, you know, I get... I find that with little video game playing, I'm going, I'm, I said, i got to get away from this. I'm not having any of that stuff on my computer. I'm going to just be doing Google Scholar and stuff like that on my there, computer. There
1: you go. <laughs> Temple, I, I wanted to see if we could take a, a couple of moments and talk about your, your two books that were best-selling books, Animals Make Us
0: Human. Yes. Okay, great. I'd other. love to talk about them. Please. Well, in animals, um, um in translation, one of the things it talked about, is how autism helped me understand animals. Everything I think about is a picture. And animals are sensory-based thinkers. They don't think in words. They're going to think in audio clips, in smell whiffs, in pictures. And in animals in translation, I I talk about a horse that was terrified of black cowboy hats. It was abused by somebody wearing a black cowboy hat. A white cowboy hat was just fine, but a black one was scary. Hmm. And you see, that specific... Um, there was also this some new research that came out with horses. It's not in the book, but where they trained a horse to tolerate a blue and white umbrella suddenly opening. But then when you threw an orange tarp at it, the horse freaked out over it. But umbrellas and tarps looked completely different. And that was a German study that was um, published after the book came out. And a lot of people that have read animals and translations that helped them to look at things from the animal's point of view not the anthropomorphic, but how would the cattle or some other animal react to it.
1: Right. That's very interesting. And those books certainly brought you a lot of notoriety and are beloved, most certainly. I'm curious, talk to us a bit about how the movie came about and what that was like for you when that was being made.
0: Uh, well, watching the first, uh, when I watched the first, uh, you know, when they got the movie all made, they brought me out to California to watch it in a private theater, And it was like going into the 60s and 70s time machine. Well, Emily Gerson Sains, the producer, had an autistic child and she'd read my book, Thinking in Pictures. So the movie was her idea. And it took a long time, it took 10 years to get the right team of people together. And then when they got Mick Jackson, a visual thinker, he was the right person to do it. He hired Claire Danes. And then I looked Claire Danes up on the internet and I'm going, you've gotta be kidding. But they put her blonde hair under a wig, and she became me. She did such, such a good job. Um, and then we had a really good writer, Christopher Munger. Uh, it was just one of those things that really worked. And I loved the fact that it showed all my projects accurately, and it showed how my visual thinking works. We were very careful to make sure that the movie's clinically accurate in terms of how it showed autism too.
1: That's terrific. And after that came out, and of course the movie received such tremendous accolades, what impact did that have on you in terms of what you're doing for autism? Activism?
0: Oh, let me tell you, I'm doing a lot of uh, talks. I'm doing a lot of TED-type of talks now. And I've updated them. Like in my new uh, TED-type talk, I put a picture of Thomas Edison up. I go, oh, you know, he was a hyperactive abled high school dropout. He probably was on the autism spectrum. Where would Tom Edison go today in today's educational system? You know, they, they, uh, I think it's a real problem. You know, what would happen to him today? Jane Goodall started her famous work with a two-year secretarial degree, you know, like a community college degree.
1: I want to jump back to Thomas Edison because that's fascinating. Are you saying from your, your perspective that Thomas Edison was on the autism spectrum?
0: Oh, I think he probably was. I read a biography on him, and he was memorizing every street Asking constant questions. There's I found some biographies online and I read you know, I read them and I go, Wait a minute, it sounds like he's on the spectrum.
1: That is really fascinating. And I know one of the things he's really famous for is and he was so narrowly focused and obsessed. I think he tried something like a thousand trials before he actually got the filament right to make the the
0: Well yeah, I know it's many, 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 many trials he tried. And that sort of obsessive perseverance, you know, he said it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Um, But I found some biographies, you know, about Thomas Edison. And and that version of my talk is on templegrandin.com, my autism site. And I gave that talk at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And you can go to templegrandin.com and and watch the, the talk where I talk about Thomas Edison.
1: That is really wild. And I want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing for autism overall. So talk to us about the resources at templegranted.com and what you're specifically doing these days in your activism work for autism.
0: Well, I want to see kids be everything they can be. I want to make sure that kids that are similar to me get out and get into really fun careers. The most fun stuff I ever had is we'd sit around the job trailer and talk about how to build stuff figure out how to build things that was just really really fun and and having a satisfying career you know has made life worth living that's one of the reasons why i put so much emphasis on it and i want to see kids be everything they can be let's say you take a kid that's nonverbal. you know these guys know the difference between fake work and real work and i went out and visited a farm program i can't say where it is because i can't so i'm not allowed to identify who the person is but I was out there just real recently, like about a couple of months ago, a farm program, and they got in a young man in his 20s very, very bad behavior problems. you had know, a huge behavior plan. They didn't know what to do with him. The kid was a runner. He'd take off and run. So what the people did is they painted marks on trees, and they just said, if oh, you want to run, you just go from tree to tree. And then they gave them real jobs that were, that were you know fairly hard physical work, like stacking up firewood which is real work, not fake work. And most of the behavior problems went away because he was doing real work that people appreciated. And when he needed to run, he could go run in a designated place. That's I, being creative.
1: That is being creative. And I, I think it is so terrific because you what you said really resonates with me and I'm sure with everybody listening is that you want kids to reach their their true potential to do things that inspire them and make them happy like you're doing because you're essentially spending some of your time doing your autism work and some of your time doing your other passion
0: which is oh your- i got to try i got to handle some new kind of cattle i just got back from brazil and they have a gray um type cattle called the Nelore, and their temperament's very different than our cattle and then they had one uh a brown Swiss dairy cow cross mixed in with them, and you could really see the difference in the personality between these two different types of cattle. And we were demonstrating it to people, showing that to people, and that was just real interesting to work Sorry. with a new kind of cattle. You know, that's the kind of stuff I think is fun. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I mean that's that's the point. Like you're doing exactly what you want to do. You're doing what you love every single day, which is awesome.
0: Well, and I also really like it when you know, a mom comes up to me. Or, or a person on the spectrum comes up and says, you've inspired me. I'm, I'm studying computer science right now and I'm going to get a job at some, you know, company. That's the kind of stuff I like to see. Get them out there doing things. What you've got to do with these kids is you have to stretch them. No sudden surprises, but stretch them and give them choices. You know, when they don't want to come out of the room, well, you could do Boy Scouts or you could do uh, robotics, you know, give them some choices staying in the room all day is not going to be one of them and that's one thing with me i was not allowed to become a recluse in my room and when i was really nervous and anxious panic attacks at the boarding school and i didn't want to go to movie night mr patey said you can be the projectionist then but you you know so i became the projectionist but i was going to be there and i had horrible panic attacks and that's now controlled antidepressant medication it saved me In my book, Thinking in Pictures, I describe all the experiences, and even though that book's a little bit old now, that information is still up-to-date and accurate. The medications have not really changed.
1: Right. What you're describing to me sounds a lot like the social skills training that we send our kids with the autism diagnosis with today, that essentially... You were forced, even though it caused you great emotional distress at the time, you were still forced to engage in social interactions, and here we are now, many years later, and it has had a profound impact in helping you in that regard.
0: But I was given some choices. I could either sit in the audience for the movie or I could run the projector. So it was giving some choices. I think that's important. You know, I think it's important for them to have some control over their, their life. No, no, you can even when I went to the special school, mother actually checked out three different schools that she liked, and then she let me pick one. You see, and I think that's important, but there were three schools that she approved of.
1: It is important. the, the, the choice, and that's, that actually helps promote cognitive flexibility. I, I want to ask you, where do you see autism research and treatment going in the next five years?
0: I think the most important stuff that could be done is to work on treatments for sensory problems because sensory problems can be extremely debilitating. My sensory sensitivities now are just nuisances. You know, like I'm having a hard time finding pants that don't itch. They've cheapened up all the cottons. You know, I may have to buy something special online or something, but I'll find something. But there's some people where they're so sound sensitive, they can't, one of the reasons they can't socialize is they can't tolerate the environment of just a moderately noisy restaurant and figuring out ways to desensitize, uh, these, uh, sensory issues. And the thing is, they're extremely variable. Uh, one kid will have sound sensitivity. Another kid has visual sensitivity problems and can't stand uh, a lot of high contrast stuff like checkerboards. As somebody else, smell smell sensitivity. It is exceedingly variable. And, I uh, there needs to be researched on, on what treatments work for that, Fig- figure out treatments that work. But you can't just study it based on an autism diagnosis. You've got to study it based on a particular sensory problem that the person has, where it may be visual sensitivity to uh, high contrast, and they see the print jiggle on the page. And sometimes those people can be helped to read by just trying out some different pastel papers, like light blue or gray or tan, and somebody else can't stand odors. Somebody else can't stand noise. And I think that's one of the most important things to be doing because this totally can restrict people's lives.
1: Absolutely. That's where
0: I'd put the research money. That's where I would put it.
1: And I'd also like to get your take on those that say our research dollars should be spent on completely undoing the neurological deficits evidenced in those with autism.
0: Well... I don't know if we want to do that. We probably wouldn't have. I'm talking on a mobile phone right now, an, an Apple mobile phone. If we didn't have a little autism genetics, this phone would not exist. It's just that simple. Yeah. And Steve Jobs, he had some autistic traits. He was a weird loner who brought snakes to school and was bullied and teased in school.
1: Goes the right you
0: know, So it's like a little bit of a trait. Gives some advantage. Too much of the trait, you know, a really big handicap. And I like the logical way that I think.
1: I think what you said makes a lot of sense in that, you know, again, back to kind of what we talked about in the beginning, focusing on strengths and not one's weaknesses to bring out their true potential regardless of how their brain may be. And I'm
0: very concerned that the visual thinkers, both autistic visual thinkers and non-autistic visual thinkers, are going to get screened out by the algebra requirement. I've been talking to deans and schools where you get kids really good at writing in English, uh, and they can't pass algebra. I talked to an English teacher recently at a meeting that was flunking algebra, flunking algebra, and uh, teaches English in high school, and he came up to me, this was just real recently, and said, you know, I went up to my fourth algebra exam, and I just wrote on it, please pass me. I will never do anything in science, and they did. He's teaching high school English now. Huh. But otherwise, he would have just been screened out, and I think the guy was about in his 40s. Uh, I think this is really, really rigid. I'm seeing a lot of kids that can't do algebra, they can do geometry. And what saved me in college is in 68, 67, when I went to college, algebra was not the required class nationally. It was finite math, which had a lot of statistics and um, probability and matrices. And with some tutoring, I got through that. I didn't have to deal with algebra. I was just lucky that it wasn't the educational fad at the time.
1: That makes a lot of sense, and I think the way that we change that is you know, people like yourself that are out there bringing awareness to these things. I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of educators that don't understand these issues, and it has to come to the forefront.
0: So well, we you see, a lot of changes. education theory and stuff is very, very top-down, very kind of theoretical. And thing is we need our visual thinkers, because when I found out why the Fukushima nuclear power plant blew up, I just couldn't believe it. It was a visual thinking mistake, so elementary, I couldn't believe they made it. Now, there's no way I can design a nuclear reactor. That's for the engineers, the mathematicians to do. But there's no way I'd put that super important emergency cooling pump with an electric motor and the generators that operate it in a non-waterproof basement. Not a good idea when you live next
1: to the sea. <laughs> Most definitely And that's not. what they did. That is what they did. And we're That okay.
0: is what they did. And what I've learned about the mathematical mind is it don't see the water going in there. I can see the water coming over the seawall, bursting out the door. Five seconds later, all that electrical equipment's underwater.
1: Wow. Temple, as you know, everybody that comes on this show, I ask them the same question at the end which is, what is your biggest helping? That is, if there's one thing you want the audience to take away from what they heard from you today, what would that be?
0: I want to take a kid's strengths, build on that strength, and turn it into a career uh, that the the, individual is going to enjoy as an adult. Okay, and if it's somebody that um, is nonverbal, I'm now thinking about a case of a guy that became a coffee maker, at a gas station convenience store. And that gave him meaning in life. He made really good coffee. And then when he retired, he was the coffee man at the nursing home. You know, that's an example of uh, somebody being everything that they can be. And for, I just want to see kids that are different get out and become everything that they can be and have a satisfying career.
1: Amen. You are, you are so singing my tune. I absolutely love it. Temple, where can people find you?
0: Well, I'm on the website at, um, at, uh, um, at the Department of Animal Science at Colorado State University. Some people have written to me through templegrandon.com, but i meant the Department of Animal Science at Colorado State University. My livestock um, webpage is grandon.com. It's my last name, and my autism website is templegrandon.com. And, of course, amazon.com has got... Um, all my books just type my name in and make sure you spell it correctly
1: that's right (laughs) we will will actually have links in the show notes and in the daily helping app for all of your books so they will be out there where people who are maybe finding finding out about you for the first time can enjoy these bestsellers Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Temple. It was an absolute honor, and thanks to everybody that tuned in. If you liked what you heard, please go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That's what helps others find this podcast. And now go out there and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know them, especially if you don't know them, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.